Welcome to the public morality. Rarely, if ever, has there been a crisis that did not have an adverse effect on those on the economic and social margin. COVID-19 is clearly no exception. In every respect of this crisis, low-income individuals are the most vulnerable. They are the most vulnerable to be hurt economically, the most vulnerable to become sick, the most vulnerable to not receive adequate medical attention, and subsequently, the most vulnerable to die. I'm joined by Dr. Camille Bousset of the Brookings Institute. Dr. Bousset is a senior fellow and director of the Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative. Dr. Camille Bousset, welcome to the Public Morality. It's great to be here, Byron. You know, since the outbreak of the coronavirus, I've closed this broadcast by quoting uh, Martin Luther King that while we may have come on different ships, we're in the same boat now. While no one doubts the ubiquitous reach of COVID-19, we may be in the same boat, but isn't it fair to also say that there's a difference with economic strata that's also playing out in this virus? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing with uh, the coronavirus is uh, the people that are being hit the most um, are people who are poor um, and usually communities of color. And there are a variety of reasons for that, some of which have to do with a long history of racism and neglect. Uh, Talk about the importance from your perspective on the need to collect that data that differentiates, you know, race and class. Um, Why is that important at this point? You know, I'm so glad you you asked that because uh, I think a lot of counties are not collecting um, the data by race. And uh, the reason it's important to have that data is that it helps us understand the reach of the disease sort of very immediately but also uh, in a more, from a more longer term perspective, it helps us understand where are the communities where we have to make the greatest number of investments post COVID. So if, uh, for instance, you have something like 70% of the deaths in um, Chicago are African American uh, deaths, then that means the African American community in Chicago needs to have a really huge investment in healthcare, mental health, and a whole range of associated investments to make sure that they're not vulnerable to the next pandemic. And when you say African American, don't you have to delineate that a little further? Because you're more than likely, I'll just use another, I'll use a Chicago native, you're not necessarily referring to the Oprahs of the world. Would that be fair? I think that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Uh, you know, we are talking not, we're talking about people who are not very well off. And uh, so it's more where low income and poverty intersect with race. So absolutely, that's true. Now, now, now many of the things that, that we're told to do to combat the spread of the virus vis-a-vis stay at home, work remotely, maintain social distancing, these are largely methods for the middle class and beyond. And talk about how challenging those things are if you fall into that low-income category. So if you fall into the low-income category, it means you're likely not able to do your job uh, remotely and from home. Uh, I just saw a recent study that that something like 80% of African Americans cannot work from home. 
and um, slightly higher percent of Latinos cannot work from home, and the percentage for whites is much um, lower. So a greater percentage of whites can work from home. So the the key is when you um, have a kind of job where you can't just jump online in your living room, you actually have to go in, and going in means you are subjecting yourself to a potential um, infection in your place of work, uh, during transit, um, and then you can bring that back to your family. And as we all know, um, poor and low-income folks of any stripe are not living in mansions, and so it's really not possible for them to distance themselves inside the home. And uh, in addition, you might have multiple, multiple generations living in a, in a home. So you're, you know, the chance of infecting grandma are much higher if you're poor and low-income and not able to take your job um, and do it from home. And then sticking with, sticking with the Chicago narrative for just a moment, if, if you live in, um, say, public housing, say, like Cabrini-Green, that, that social distancing takes on another layer, layer of difficulty. Absolutely. So public housing, you know, by definition, um, is uh, very high-density housing. And um, as we know, a lot of – so high-density means people are – they're going to come in contact with each other. The chances that you can do six feet of social distancing or physical distancing are pretty low. Uh, not only that, in public housing, people tend to double up a lot. Um, you have several families in an apartment, et cetera. Um, and then, uh, in addition, you know, a lot of the um, usual problems that you would have in public housing, so, for instance, the crime, et cetera, um, those will keep people uh, inside um, and with each other. Uh, in a more kind of close contact situation. So, you know, all of that um, can lead to a higher infection rate. And I think we're seeing that in a number of black communities throughout the United States. So, again, I think it's really important that we collect the data around who is being most impacted because when dollars start flowing, and they will, uh, start flowing um, in the next few months from the Federal Reserve via some congressional acts, Communities that are really at risk need to be at the forefront of receiving those investments. Just staying momentarily just with the social distancing piece, is, is, has, has anyone, to your knowledge, um, given any thought uh, how some of the measures to prevent the coronavirus might play out specifically in uh, low-income areas, well, given some of the challenges you just articulated? You know, I think... Um, there hasn't been a lot of attention given to that, and uh, I think part of the reason for that is everybody is in reactive mode. And so, um, you know, the federal government all the way down to local governments are scrambling basically to deal with the health crisis, uh, the corona health crisis, so getting enough beds, enough ventilators, making sure they're, you know, uh, um, personal protective equipment for uh, first responders. And so these other kinds of considerations, um, which should be fairly primary, uh, are not because folks are still struggling to get just the basics done. I know in some, um, in some jurisdictions, for instance, here in, in uh, the D.C. metro area, one of the um, new kinds of arrangements that's happening with public transit is uh, they are now obviously running fewer lines because fewer people are going to work, but they are um, having everybody board buses from the middle and the back entrances 
so that an exit um, and you know, disembark on the and those exits because they don't want the bus drivers to go in contact with anybody. And as a result, public transit is now free. Um, so there are some municipalities that are, I think are taking steps around some of the more um, basic elements, but the one that you're talking about, which is where you have low-income people in um, very close contact with one another, is not something that we're seeing being um, treated directly, and it only is treated if there seems to be an outbreak in a particular place. So I think that's a that's a, um, a layer of attention that you know hasn't really received um, a lot of uh, introspection and a lot of attention because people are basically trying to fight you know the the major pieces the PPEs and the ventilators etc. No, I was just I was just thinking. It just seemed to me that the very things that you're told that could lessen the impact of the virus are antithetical to people living in certain low-income conditions. That just seemed oxymoronic to yeah, me. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I think the other thing that I, I think is, isn't well uh, understood is um, when the federal government has gone through, I think it's now three different um, acts that provide funding for various kinds of entities and for individuals and households. Um, one of the areas where we as a United States are still pretty, um, I think, uh, you know, pre- pretty likely to see some infections is in the migrant population and populations that are undocumented. For those folks, uh, none of the congressional actions actually provide for their health care or for, um, you know, for any kind of uh financial assistance. So you're going to have people who are in the probably the most dense kind of housing, right, eight people to a room, et cetera, um, who really have to work. So think about farm workers and other kinds of day laborers. Um, they're all packed into the same, you know, residential setting. And these are the very same people that could be scooped up by ICE and so, obviously, they're not going to run and try to get health care. Plus, they can't afford to get it. And um, they are also not going to be receiving any stimulus checks, right? So, they also present, I think, a special set of circumstances. And I'm actually a little appalled that, uh, you know, the federal government has not just decided to make them um, residents for the purposes of covering health care or at least the testing, and um, for the purposes of giving them checks, because I think that's a flank where we're a little bit exposed. And um, when you have one set of your population, which is not at all being covered, that means in a very contagious situation like this, that other people will likely be impacted. Now, it's no secret that artificial intelligence has already begun the process, but this is before COVID-19 of replacing many of those low-skill positions. Doesn't the aftermath of the coronavirus also potentially exacerbate that trend as well? You know, it it could, although um, it's really interesting. Artificial intelligence, I think, replaces some very rote kinds of um, tasks. So, obviously, we were going to be moving in that direction anyway, and this is certainly, I think, has accelerated it. However, I think what we are seeing is that there are some... uh, 
professions where or jobs where it is not possible to totally automate things. So when you think about people who work in nursing homes, um, that's a really that's a really kind of um, high touch environment where you actually need people, and uh, so. People who work in nursing homes are not necessarily losing their jobs, but they're ne- they are being impacted by the infection and are you know getting infections themselves. So that's a type of work where you can't really replace people with AI and robots. Um, it turns out, which is interesting, that people who pack groceries also are not being replaced by robots. And you would think that with the Amazons and other giants of the world, that they might have automated that, but it doesn't seem like they've automated that. Uh, People who work in pharmacies, um, you know, frontline medical workers, uh, so they're, you know, and restaurant workers. Um, So not all of those jobs are being replaced, I think, at the rate that um, some of the, you know, more alarmist kinds of reports about AI would predict. So I think there's still a vast, a percentage of the American economy, which will not be replaced by AI anytime soon. I, I was hoping that, that you would also include NPR-affiliated radio hosts in, on that list of things that couldn't be replaced. Absolutely, but... <laughs> absolutely. You, know, you have the special touch, which you know, obviously a, a, rec- a robot voice is not going to have. All right, so, okay, yeah, there we absolutely. go. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, you know, we... You know, we've also known for for several decades about the technology gap that exists between those in the economic margin and the larger society. I suspect as the importance of technology grows to some degree as a result of the coronavirus, it could also have an adverse impact or further impact on communities that we're discussing today. Absolutely. And I think where you're going to see that um, manifest itself probably most immediately, is in schools. Um, So I think, obviously, most school systems at this point, um, save for maybe a few in in the southeast, um, have closed and um, are closed either, you know, for an indefinite period or certainly throughout the rest of the school year. Um, And all of them, most of those systems have moved online. Now, that requires, of course, that uh, kids have access to something like a laptop, tablet, Chromebook, something like that, um, or a phone, and also have Wi-Fi. And um, as you had mentioned, you know, there are a lot of communities where that is not um, standard. And it's expensive to have a laptop, Chromebook, Chromebook, or, you know, a phone, and it's expensive to have a Wi-Fi hookup. And so um, I think you're going to see, that, particularly in places that are not, urban, some more rural and suburban areas um, where the school districts do not have the wherewithal to provide uh, both the machine and the Wi-Fi hotspot, that kids are going to be falling behind. And the poorer the child, the more likely they are going to fall behind. So that's number one. Number two is, again, in the school space, that um, poor communities um, are likely you're going to have a lot of adults that have to work. Um, And so in order for those adults to work, as we mentioned earlier, they're going to have to go outside of the home. So what that's that's going to mean is that uh, even if there are some rudimentary um, access to Internet uh, and maybe the child is using his or her, her phone, that the kind of parental supervision that is typically assumed by school districts in order to get through a virtual day 
is not going to exist in those households. And particularly as you move down in the income level where you might have a single um, head of household and that person is working. So we're likely to see um, those disparities between kids who, um, you know, are, uh, are more affluent and those who are very poor. We're likely to see those disparities widen and pr- pretty immediately. Then with respect to adults, um, obviously, if there are lots of households that don't have access to Internet, it's going to make a lot of things more difficult. Obviously, the, you know, poor households are not working from home. But also things like applying for your health insurance, um, applying for unemployment insurance, those things which often can be done online will not be able to, those folks will not be able to do them online, which means what if they're going to have to show up somewhere. And uh, showing up somewhere, of course, increases the chances of infection. And that, again, um, is, a, I think, you know, signals how different our circumstances are here are by income and certainly by race in the U.S. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Dr. Camille Bousset of the Brookings Institution, and we're discussing the impact of COVID-19, in particular on, on those on the economic margin. Uh, Dr. Bousset, based on your last answer, I'm also thinking, of, uh, could we also add not all, but uh, a number of the historically black colleges and universities that have had to ramp up almost overnight to an online format? And, and without the requisite resources, is that sustainable for many of those institutions? So that is a great, uh, actually a great question. And the, um, you know, the brief answer is no, it's not sustainable for them. So unlike, you know, the Harvards or Stanfords of the world, um, these colleges, HBCUs, typically do not have endowments or large endowments if they do have an endowment. Um, and they typically get a good chunk of their revenue from tuition and from um, charging for housing for dorms. Uh, so when you send people home, and you have to kind of ramp up on your um, IT investment, uh, and you're now refunding money from dorms, uh, dorm fees, et cetera, how, you know, meal plans, et cetera, you are now definitely at risk. And the reason that is so important and so dangerous is that part of the way universities are accredited is um, one of the major factors is their financial resilience and their, um, you know, their ability to have a capital margin. And uh, when HBCUs are imperiled like this, it's going to be really important for them to get an infusion. Now, they have gotten an infusion in the last um, CARE stimulus package. It's a small amount. Um, I think it's like four $4 million um, across all the HBCUs, but it's clearly going to be, need, this needs to be a lot more than that, or some of them are going to be, um, are going to lose their accreditation and probably uh, have some other kinds of financial difficulties. So I'm so glad you raised that because that is, that is a real pain point um, for those, for those universities. Well, it also stands the reason that a word we like to toss around but not act on in terms of any substantive legislation is the word infrastructure. I mean, that whole word has to be redefined in a post-COVID-19 world, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about here is, you know, when we're talking about uh, in general in the news media as well as um, at the, you know, government, federal government press conferences about, we're talking about things going back to normal. 
I think what everybody has in mind is that, okay, you know, we have a few stimulus bills, uh, people start to um, get jobs, and, you know, consumers start to spend money, and then businesses start to, you know, kind of um, get their motors going again. Um, what I think about when I hear about things getting to normal is I think about the enormous cracks um, and social divides and the web of social neglect that has been exposed. And I think about how we can utilize this moment to make sure the investments fall in the right places. So I do think uh, when I think about infrastructure, um, and what that might look like post-COVID. I'm not just thinking about roads and bridges and, you know, that sort of thing. I'm thinking about, you know, you take a, any community, Southside Chicago, Milwaukee, any community that is really has really been neglected for uh, decades, if not, you know, a couple centuries, and you think about the kinds of investments that need to be made there, not only in the healthcare infrastructure, but also the income-generating infrastructure, the school infrastructure. Um, you know, you can go on and on, transit uh, infrastructure. So when I think about what is really needed post-COVID, I think about how do we focus our investments in those places that have never received investment or have received very, very few, and how do we make sure that they are not uh, imperiled when something like this occurs again? This is the country is currently, as you stated, uh, in a reactionary posture. Doesn't that run the risk of sort of organically morphing into a social triage uh, where we must go through several degrees of urgency before we begin to prioritize those that are economically disadvantaged? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a certain truth to that. And I think it's um, probably heightened by the fact that people with resources are going to be coming um, with their tin cans before people who don't have resources. Uh, so when I think about, for instance, the most recent stimulus package, um, you know, there was a there's a fair amount of money in there uh, for large businesses. It's $525 billion, part of which is tax breaks and part of which, is, uh, part of which are loans. Um, but they are in a position with lobbyists, et cetera, to um, really make sure they're at the front of the line. And, uh, you know, the individual communities, individuals, particularly those who are poorer and more disadvantaged, have to rely on advocates who um, are not as well-resourced as lobbyists to make sure that um, they get at least some proportion of what is being um, offered. So there is definitely, I think, an imbalance where people with more resources are going to be asking for more and are more able to do that. And I think what's, uh, you know, I think what's incumbent upon us as we start to turn the corner um, in this particular epidemic, and I do not know when that will uh, happen, is that we all have to really be thinking about what's the strategy moving forward to make sure that the kinds of communities that um, have really been, you know, have have um, experienced a real disinvestment um, are coming to the fore and are able to get the kinds of resources that they need. And, and given the unprecedented nature of this pandemic, I mean, we, we sort of, and we talk about it in terms of the Great Depression, but, but really, instead of a, a really economic decline, we've hit an economic pause button 
and just stopped. And I suspect that once we hit resume the economy before COVID-19 will look very different than the one after. Talk about the effect of those straddling the economic margin in that new world. Sure. I mean, I think um, when I think about what's going to look different, I think, number one, um, obviously, small businesses, um, many of them are just not going to survive and, and probably fairly, some fairly large ones. But let me talk a little bit about small businesses. So I do think that the combination of the sort of abruptness of the economic collapse um, together with, you know, the kind of margins that small businesses tend to, um, you know, run on, plus the incredibly tedious, bureaucratic, and laborious process um, and expensive process uh, to apply for small business loans. All of that is going to mean that a lot of those businesses are just not going to survive. And when you think about minority and women-owned businesses in particular, these are really, 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 really um, working on very tiny margins. And these are the kinds of folks who cannot call their accountant to fill out, you know, um, 25 reams of paperwork for the SBA loans. So I expect that just like we saw in the, during the Great Recession, that um, uh, minority and small and, and um, women small loan businesses will probably decrease significantly. So that landscape is probably going to look very different. Um, I also think that uh, the larger larger corporations, um, you know, most of whom are starting to furlough folks. Uh, are not going to be up and running immediately. And there's likely to be a very long lag, particularly if you're in a consumer-focused business where you, you depend on consumers to actually buy things. So there I would expect that you're going to have continued large um, percentages of unemployment. And so the way I look at it is um, we are going to be recovering in stages. Um, small businesses are probably likely to not recover, um, you know, by very by a very vast margin. Large businesses, if they're consumer-focused, are going to be taking a couple years to recover. And um, in the meantime, you're going to have the very few businesses that are actually hiring people um, are going to be in a position to actually, um, uh, you know, dictate wages and um, safety standards um, and benefits in a way that I don't think we have seen um, in the last 150 years. Talk, talk, if you would, about first about the First Family Act, and then uh, I'd like to have you discuss the additional recommendations that, from that act in, in, in addition that you posted on your Brookings site. Sure. Um, so the Family First Act is the one that was part, uh, passed in mid-March, this is the one that guarantees um, free coronavirus testing. Uh, it established paid, paid leave. It enhanced unemployment insurance, and it expanded food security initiatives. Also, it increased um, federal Medicaid funding. Um, so the interesting, I think, piece there about the, first, the Family First Act is that it guaranteed free coronavirus testing, but it did not guarantee um, co coverage, so uh, coverage for the actual um, medical bills. So for those who, you know, are hospitalized with coronavirus, it's estimated that they could expect to pay anywhere from 42000 to 74000 and change if they're uninsured 
um, and if they receive care that's deemed out of network, which is a tremendous amount of money. And for those who are insured, um, they would expect to pay to pay somewhere between twenty two thousand and thirty nine thousand. And so none of the congressional acts actually help uh, people cover the costs of coronavirus care. But I do want to talk a little bit about the CARES Act, which is the most recent two trillion dollar stimulus, mm-hmm. and um, just say a little bit about that. So, you know, uh, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that two trillion dollars is not at all going to cover um, what is likely to be needed to resuscitate the economy. The economy is in, in collapse. Um, we have currently thirteen percent unemployment, and that's likely to go above twenty percent. Um, and when you compare it to the Great Depression, there was, you know, the height of the Great Depression is 24.9% um, unemployment in 1933. So we are likely to see some uh, very, very um, dangerous levels of unemployment. What that is going to mean is that the federal government, and what, what I mean by that is the Federal Reserve, is likely to have to be the um, lifeline of this economy. And that means that Congress is just going to have to pass a range of stimulus and um, recovery bills. And those will have to include regular payments to individuals and families. They will have to include more small business loans. And right now, Treasury is saying they need another $200 billion. This is three days into, um, you know, the outlay for, for under the current um, $2 trillion package. They are now saying they need another $200 billion. Um, there are going to be additional uh, loans needed for large corporations. And, again, as I mentioned, HBCUs and other kinds of universities are going to be stressed. So this, uh, where we are right now is a $2 trillion uh, down payment. And I would not be surprised if at the end of this entire period, which I would estimate is probably about 18 months, we we have not spent more than 12 billion dollars, I'm sorry, $12 trillion to get the economy back on track. You know, and, and, and with all that said, there, there's still a very real risk. I'm, I'm judging that based on the totality of this conversation. It's a real risk that um, we might increase the numbers of a permanent underclass with no chance of social mobility? And what's the overall impact on a society that's doing that? Okay, so I agree 100% with you on that, um, unfortunately. And um, as we can see right now, right, when you have such a high degree of um, inequity, uh, and particularly in a situation like this where the coronavirus doesn't really discriminate, um, among, you know, poor and others, um, you know, it puts everyone at risk. And I think one of the great, I, you know, I don't want to say great things about this, but one of the things that I think will be an outcome of this particular um, pandemic is an understanding of how what affects the most vulnerable also affects everybody else. That said, however, I think we are really advocates for the most vulnerable and the most marginalized are really going to have to be incredibly aggressive to get the kinds of investments that we need. Otherwise, the disparities will widen and the permanent underclass will remain a permanent but a much larger segment of society. Uh, as, as 
Let's follow that up. We, I, I mentioned that social triage, but uh, are we trying to do too much right now? Like we're trying to focus on people, but we, but we want to save the economy. Um, if we're if we're going to have a social triage, should it be one that prioritizes people first and then get back to the economy and doing any kind of stimulus that is that's in the best interest of the people? Should that be our priority, or should we continue this? Try both and um, sort of haphazard, my words, uh, approach. So I think uh, we have to be extremely people-focused, um, both from a health perspective and an economic perspective. So I do not think it is realistic to think about getting the economy back on track anytime soon. So what that's going to mean is we really have to be focused on how do we keep people afloat financially, uh, and that means individuals and households um, and small businesses um, and large corporations will obviously be begging for money, and so they'll probably get some as well. But we need to be thinking about how do we keep people afloat financially so they can afford food, health care, et cetera. Um, so that's number one. And number two, we need to be very people-focused um, from a health care perspective. So back to the, the very beginning of our conversation when we talked about marginalized groups having um, being at greater risk because of their housing situations and their job, you know, your inability to work uh, inside the home um, for their jobs, that puts them at greater risk. We need to spend more time and money making sure that testing gets to those folks um, and that those folks have the kind of health care support that they need. Uh, and so I think we need to be 100% human being focused. And once we get the health um, crisis under control, the economy will then follow. Dr. Camille said Brookings Institution, I want to thank you uh, for joining me with your sage counsel uh, on the public morality today. Much appreciated. Byron, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter, the archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. Remember in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we may all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm... Byron Williams.